and welcome to the main course. I'm Barbara Castiglia of Modern Restaurant Management. And today we're going to focus a little bit more on beverage only concepts. And, you know, they've really been taken, taking by storm over the past couple of years. Um, and, uh, and one of them that is really getting a lot of interest um, is an iced tea uh, one. It has other things, but it really focuses on um, on iced tea and, you know, and the fascination for all the different flavors and all the things that you can do. Um, so with me now is Justin Howe of HTO um, out of Texas. So welcome, Justin. Um, thanks for, for joining us today. So, you know, first tell me um, a little bit about what the HTO TO concept is and where the idea originated. I know you come from a restaurant family, um, you know, so how did you, how did you kind of get a, come up with the idea uh, for what HTO is? Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for the invitation. We're honored to participate and love, uh, love talking about HTO. So you bet. Yeah. Um, in, in, in the early 2000s, uh, mid 2000s, uh, you know, we were 20 years into the hamburger business at the at the at the concept that my parents owned, Buns Over Texas. And if you'll recall, the economy was starting to stumble to 2006, 2007, and then ultimately, you know, kind of went off a cliff in 08. Um, at at Thanksgiving dinners, at uh, family gatherings, all we talk about is how to get sales up at our businesses. And uh, we, we own quite a few different businesses, several restaurants. And one idea was to add six flavors of iced tea to the hamburger restaurant. And, uh, and it worked in 2008 when the economy was stumbling. Uh, I think sales were up 15% the first year after introducing the six flavors of tea. And then thankfully, the market went off a cliff and we were able to acquire a 35,000 square foot pad site in a in an investor institutional investor owned shopping center which is very difficult to do especially if you're an owner operator or not a national chain to get a decision maker on the phone is difficult so we were able to my family my parents were able to acquire a 35,000 square foot pad site <clears throat> i owned a construction company at the time and we went to work building a new uh buns over texas and on the end my parents put a, a 1,200 square foot end cap drive through iced tea only concept. And so that was sort of the, uh, the origin of the HTO story. We used the, the mark Texas Tea, uh, which that store still branded Texas Tea in Amarillo. And uh, yeah, it was just an experiment. We were, he was, we were looking to just offset rent at the hamburger restaurant. And if you hang around uh, our family much, it's always something. We're, we're either starting a, a snow cone stand or another restaurant. We've owned seafood restaurants, fine dining steakhouses, several hamburger concepts. And so, uh, yeah, it's just one of those things. And so we, I remember the grand opening. Uh, we we kind of high-fived and everyone went back to work. I owned an aircraft management company at the time. I was a home builder. I'm the largest granite countertop fabricator in the Texas Panhandle. Uh, we own several different uh, businesses, and so we all just went back to work. It was just a cool idea that, you know, they had. So, guys, when you guys get all get together, you're all talking about new concepts and new things that you can do, always kind of innovating? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's – yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's essentially all we talk about. Uh, my sister's an, a social media influencer and has millions of followers, and she's a 
She's one of the top Amazon sales uh, people. Uh, my mom owned uh, hair salons and uh, rented office space to the girls. My stepdad owned hamburger restaurants. My real dad was a general contractor and a cabinet maker. And so, yeah, I mean, it was just constantly, what do we do to get sales up? And yeah. So, you know, a lot of people who are from the South understand the concept of sweet tea and how much of a role it plays in their day-to-day life. Um, So what is it about iced tea that made you think that this concept um, was something that would be viable? Um, I don't think we thought it would be viable in the beginning. It was a total experiment, uh, a prototype, if you will. If you've ever started a business and you needed the income, the business would has never grown to be what it could be. And in this case, it was a total experiment. We just took the, the approach of prototype. Let's see if it works. Let's see if people respond to it. And if you think back to coffee, when Starbucks took it out of a pancake restaurant, go back to that. Just put yourself in a pancake restaurant, say this Saturday morning. Just imagine you go eat breakfast at the pancake restaurant and imagine what that coffee tastes like to this day. It's terrible. And and so in the iced tea business, it's the same. Any restaurant you go to, for the most part, the iced tea is terrible. Once you've tasted good iced tea. Right. The same way Starbucks took coffee out of the rest of the I mean, the pancake restaurant. We're just taking iced tea out of the restaurant, making it we're making it exceptional. So can you talk a little bit about how your iced tea is exceptional? Um, you know, the process that that you use in, you know, to make it so that, um, you know, so that it does is a better than what you would get at any other restaurant. I, I'm an open book. I'm going to try hard not to uh, reveal the secrets of which sure. there are many, uh, but uh, essentially really good water, broadleaf tea, brewed fresh, served chilled and uh and a a relentless focus on uh product quality and detail as it comes to brewing the tea i mean we we have we're serving around uh maybe 300 plus thousand cups of tea per week right now and we very rarely get product quality uh complaints what we what we do get in in as it relates to product quality reclaims are just the ice levels and how much ice i got those are things we battle daily, but uh, the product quality is is the fundamental foundation for which we uh, operate uh, from a product standpoint, and that's something that we you know we we just pay super close attention to. So, what are some of your go to flavors? I hate to. I mean, I I drink unsweet regular with lots of lemon. <laughs> I try not to drink calories. Uh, right. But if you, te- I mean, every flavor is amazing. If I, if I, if I, if I, if I, if I'm weak in a moment, I'll, I'll, I'll use, I'll drink the coconut sweet tea. It's amazing. <laughs> so you have a secret menu, um, which kind of operates like as an LTO. Um, so uh, how do you come up with the different flavors? Um, you know, do you listen to your audience? Is it people who are, are working for you who are coming up with these things, um, you know, and how important is that um, to kind of like engaging with your guests? I always wonder like when people, you know, when they, when an LTO presents itself, you know, who dreamed this up, right? And, and how scientific was it? Right. Uh, 
we don't we don't think of anything. The customers literally built the secret menu without our input. Now, of course, we had to respond and say, okay, we know what that means or what that flavor is. And of course, there was collaboration at the store level with the store employees, and it's all fun and games. Uh, but every single secret menu item was built organically uh, through uh, interactions at the window with the team and through the through the through the guests. Uh, and then what we've done is we've just sort of, you know, identified the top sellers. Uh, we've enhanced the mixes, perhaps, uh, to make them more flavorful or more colorful, and then uh, just just. Um, embrace the names that were already being used, and then yeah, we we launch we 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 launch new broadleaf tea products uh, all the time, but we also do highlight the uh, secret menu as like you said, like sort of like an LTO. Right. So, who is your customer? You know, uh, great question. Um, it's 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 very hard to just single out one demographic, which is awesome. Because you know we we we're, we're, uh, we have broad appeal across all demographics, but if I had to circle one that just barely peeks their head above the others, it would be like uh, like a like a mom, like a, a soccer mom, or or um, you know maybe like uh, teachers and nurses. You know what I mean? Like a mm-hmm. uh, you know someone that just sort of is is trying to get relief from the middle of the day. And it's and it's just very it just barely I'm I'm almost hesitant to even say it because we're, we have such a broad demographic but yeah I mean I'd say a soccer mom would be as as close as I could get to naming one right. you know and who would be your competition is it you know uh, going to some kind of convenience store is it uh, a a fast food place where somebody may get a drink you know why are who would you say you're you're competing against and how do you compare. I mean, unfortunately, I think I have I, the only, the only, the only real, uh, yes, the, yes, the convenience stores are, are obviously, uh, that's, that's prime, uh, market share for us to, to tackle the restaurants, all of those things. But really, I would have to say like a Starbucks. I mean, especially any specialty drink, uh, any, anybody that sells specialty drink beverages. I mean, like you mentioned, the drive-through beverage uh, space is is pretty hot right now, and I don't think it's hot in terms of uh, market. In fact, I think coffee coffee consumption has gone down over the last ten years. You just finally have some brands that have attempted to gain market share from Starbucks, and and uh, we're just a different option. I mean, we're a totally different option. When we, when we see a Starbucks open close to us, our sales actually go up. So I, I have no, I can't. It's a phenomenon. I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know that that you could just single out one competitor, but I mean, obviously, specialty drink, uh, um, you know, concepts are obviously competition. So, right. Um, so obviously, you're you're looking to grow even more. Um, so, are there particular areas where you're looking to expand? Um, I know you have a big Texas focus on the logo and, and everything. Um, but you know, where, where do you see this growing? Yeah. I mean, I think from a, from a food standpoint, you know, the, the foodie world and, you know, people that, um, love food, I think they always like a cultural twist on some, on some, on something. Right. I think that's what we are for, for iced tea. I don't know that, uh, 
Uh, we necessarily do it better than anywhere else, but we do it a very specific way. And that's, that's sort of the appeal uh, from a Texas standpoint. Uh, we're focused primarily south of I-40. Uh, and we're probably stopping at at Arizona to the west, but yeah, Florida is a. We have two stores open in Florida, several under construction, and then uh, quite a bit of development through the coastal bend and up through the Carolinas. Uh, we're focused, you know, Florida, and we'll let the coastal bend fill in uh, behind it. But yeah, lots of opportunity on the coastal in the coastal bend area in Florida and and up the east coast a little bit. And we've done some super expensive, extensive surveying, and uh, we feel like we're potentially good all the way up to Virginia. So let's just say south of I-40, Coastal Bend. Okay. Uh, and you had mentioned that the first one was 1,200 square feet. Um, so in terms of size, what are you looking for? What are those requirements? I mean, our, our ideal store is 2,200 feet. Okay. And, uh, you know, that's we're challenging that idea constantly uh, with with innovations in, in building corporate stores. But um, yeah, I mean, 2,000, 2,200. We have two point of sales inside the building and of course one in the drive through or two if we have uh, the, you know, we have a, a position where someone stands there and takes the orders on an iPad. So so we, we, we essentially have four points of sale. We want two of those to be inside. We see quite a bit of foot traffic. We average 40% of our guests come in the building and, you know, it's a self-serve. There's 26 flavors. There's fruit options. We sell Yeti coolers. We sell Kind Bar, Cliff Bar, Pop Chip, Kettle Chip. We sell all kinds of retail products inside as well as what we call the brew house, which is coffee. Um, so you mentioned that people are using iPads. Um, so how important is technology in handling the operational aspects of what you do? Um, becoming more and more important every day. Obviously, when we were uh, when, uh, through COVID, we had we had uh, thankfully we had signed a contract and started to build our online our app our our loyalty app with our uh, online ordering platform. And so we've we've launched that. Um, we've been very very slow to um, launch the online ordering just because. Um, one of the things that's unique to us is our order, our, our time at windows are very, very low. So we're super fast at the drive through and we, we're going to protect that at all costs. And that way, if there's 20 cars in line, you still feel comfortable jumping in. And so we're, we're rolling out the online ordering with uh, limited menus and uh, limited modifiers. We're, we're, we're rolling out, we're rolling out quite a, quite a bit of technology, but super slow. And, uh, but yeah, it's, Thankfully, right now, that's low-hanging fruit for us because it's going to help us process transactions faster. But, I mean, essentially, technology puts a point of sale in every guest's hand, right? right. And and uh, and obviously, that's the future. But thankfully, our, our AUVs are adequate to, to support sales without a super strong online ordering volume. I mean, we're in the, we're in the single digits, and we know that that's – we're super excited about the future there. But, yeah, we're um, – working hard there. Yep. Right. So you mentioned the pandemic. So what was, you know, what was your pandemic experience like and what, what do you think you learned from it? Um, stores that were already open um, did, did pretty well after obviously the first little, you know, few months or six months, they did really well. Uh, I mean, we would see 
drive up stacks 30 and 40 cars deep. Nobody, of course, coming inside. And so that put a, a super, you know, it limited us significantly there. Um, but, um, I mean, I think we learned a lot of resilience. We learned, uh, we learned how to focus on bringing the uh, guest experience outside. So for us, it's all about the experience. You walk in the door and you're hit with, you're hit with sensory overload colors and sounds and smells and flavors. And it's literally, we're touching all the senses when you walk in the door and sure. we, that got cut out from under us, obviously overnight. So how do you bring that experience to the drive through? I think yeah, we right. still suck at it, but we're, we're trying hard and we've learned, we've learned a lot and we've definitely innovated. We've, we, we brought in a modular menu. We're not, we're not full digital. We're modular so that we can put LTOs on flip sided panels, very, a very unique menu. In fact, the sign company that built it for us, we just went round and round and round until we finally got them to build what we wanted. Uh, but yeah, we innovated through the menu. We innovated through the app. Obviously, we, you know, we've just got to, uh, but to bring the customer experience outside was the ch most challenging part. And I think something, like I said, we still, we still haven't quite cracked the code on, but that's where we're focused. And, um, and then, yeah, I mean, resilience through COVID stores that opened during COVID were, were, most negatively impacted. Um, we have stores that open during COVID that still are lower performing stores, unfortunately. And, and that's a direct correlation with that. I mean, we had stores ready to open March 15th of 2020 that had mm. to delay several months and those stores are still lower performers for us. So, uh, so yeah, we, we, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're overcoming that, but, um, since then every grand opening gets busier and better. So, um, what are you doing to help those stores? Um, you know, kind of they they lost time. You know, not not kind of that that newness of having a grand opening was kind of uh, you know overtaken by the pandemic. So um, you know, how are in what ways are you doing things to kind of help them out now? Well, one one thing is we launched all those stores. You know, we're, we're an iced tea concept, right? And so we opened fifty stores without what we call brew house. But we, we had designed all 50 stores to basically uh, be able to stand up the brew house pretty quick. From, an, from a, a back of house design standpoint, we had counter space allocated for the future brew house, which is all the coffee drinks. We have super automatic espresso machines and all the iced and hot drinks. Um, again, we're an iced tea concept, but we do sell. We do, we do have a pretty good menu for what we call brew house. And, and so, uh, uh, retrofitting those stores with brew house has, has significantly helped. Uh, it's significantly helped all the stores that were, I say not all, actually not all the stores, but most of the stores that didn't open with brew house, uh, that has helped tremendously. And then it just boils down to community marketing. And um, one thing that's unique to our brand, uh, at least for me being in the restaurant business, when you grand open a restaurant, sales are usually, you know, the best they'll ever be week one, right? That, right. That's not true for us. Um, we do have great grand openings and we do have some capacity um, cadence that's established in the first two weeks of opening, first month of opening, but uh, our stores organically grow in sales over time and transaction count over time until they, they there is data that shows that it plateaus and then you have to have, you know, you've got to innovate inside your, your business to get them right. up beyond that. But we, definitely grow over time. And so time has healed a lot of those wounds as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and I believe it'll continue to, to, to improve sales over time. I mean, 
our first store opened, goodness, uh, almost 14 years ago. Right. Impossible to really imagine. But uh, and that store does. It's very flat. Sales are very flat. It's very difficult to move the needle up at that store, our first store. Uh, and our second store, but the transaction volume is adequate. It's they do amazing sales, and uh, we're you know at some point that you know the the capacity of the store is reached, and then you've got to build stores across the street. Essentially, right. not really, but you know what I mean. No, I know what you mean. Yeah. Um, do you think that one of the reasons that that sales tend to go up is do you have a really good word of mouth? Um, are you using are people uh, focusing on, on you on social media and that's bringing in traffic? Um, is it organizations? Is it working, doing things locally that bring people in over time? I wish I could say that there's a secret uh, that that can be revealed, but then there absolutely is a secret, but we don't know. It's a phenomenon and it's all word of mouth. It's all organic. Uh, and thankfully, from a marketing perspective, we focus most of our time in store innovation, LTOs, signage, uh, customer experience, and very little time trying to innovate in terms of, uh, you know, in, in terms of like geo-targeted ads and, you know, what we don't have a content creator. We're good at content. We understand social media. Uh, we, we're not creating content as a, as a, as a, as a mandate yet. So lots right. of low hanging fruit from a marketing standpoint, but no, it's a, it's a total phenomenon. And, and the beautiful thing about that is we know, we know this is a permanent trend and not a fad. So, um, and so when we start to crack the marketing code, which we will, we're starting to focus on it. We're starting to focus on, you know, there's all kinds of influencer marketing avenues and, there's all kinds of low hanging fruit for us that we're just now starting to start to imagine. And so that's the beautiful thing about it. Our, our AUVs are adequate and exceed my expectations now with lots of low hanging fruit for the future. Right. You can always get advice from your sister. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so, fran <laughs> so franchising, um, you know, what are you guys looking for in franchisee partners? Um, you know, what, what kind of qualifications do they need to have? I mean, uh, from a net worth standpoint, we're looking for, and frankly, uh, you know, we're, we're just looking to meet underwriting requirements of institutional landlords, right? Our, you know, if you want to go open one of these and get an SBA loan, much lower uh, net worth requirements than, than an institutional landlord. So what, look around in your market, search from a, you know, call a broker and say, hey, how much do I need? You know, what kind of net worth do I need to ground lease this corner? And that's the answer from an underwriting standpoint. So we don't have a one size fits all, but it's definitely it's definitely a seven figure net worth, multiple seven figure net worth. But really what we're looking for is and and there's a lot of we have a lot more uh, money, frankly, uh, that that inquire than we do operators, which operators are the key to the recipe. So if you're an operator, and you don't have millions of dollars. Don't don't worry about it. There's a lot more money than there are you. And so if, if you're an operator, we can, you know, still make the phone call. We can help connect you with the options. But, um, yeah, I mean, we're looking for uh, our dream. My dream as an entrepreneur, I own 20 plus companies. Uh, my dream is to take someone that's, uh, you know, my age, that's been in the corporate world, makes a really good salary, uh, has a 401k that, that may or may not math out for long term retirement, Someone that wants to sort of take control of their world and their life and say, 
you know, this is something that I can do to make an impact or maybe even create a legacy. That's our dream, right? And there's a lot of those in the system. And to take someone like that through this is very difficult because uh, you have to go back to, uh, you got, I mean, you have to go backwards and you've got to be the guy that sweeps the floor. You've got to be the guy that, 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 you know, gets up early and works the hardest and, you know, loves the customer, which again is the most important part of the equation. And so it, you know, it's, it's a very humbling experience for someone like that, but that's our dream to take that and, and let them, take control of their of their destiny essentially now we're seeing multi-unit operators that have actually you know uh, that have really good internal cultures that can still provide that owner operator experience and by the way that's our dream is to take someone like that and make them a partner or make them a an owner but the most important part of the equation is who's going to love the customers that walk through the front door because again that's 80 percent of the recipe the brand's great the logo's great all of our all of our assets are great. All of the, the systems great. The product's great. We, you know, we solved all of these problems, but that's only twenty percent of the equation. Eighty percent is is the person that's going to stand there and greet the person that comes in the door and hug their neck when they're having a bad day, and that's the recipe. So, uh, so yeah, that's what we're looking for now. Again, we've seen some multi-unit operators that have really great internal cultures. We've allowed a few to, to jump in at the two and three store level and now five and 10 and maybe 15 stores, but very slow starts with the multi-unit people. If they have a great culture, then they're a great fit. We, we use logic to make decisions, right? But we've got to see that for ourselves. And and now we're, we're entertaining some multi-unit operators, although I wouldn't say that we, you know, from a, from a real, you know, multi-hundred unit, uh, uh, multi multi-unit, multi-brand operator. We haven't done any of those deals just yet. And we're, we're, we're considering the possibility that it's possible, but we just haven't crossed that bridge yet. Excited to see what that's like. But my job is to protect the culture. And what I mean by protect the culture, it's the culture, uh, it's the guest experience, it's the employees first. Uh, these are things that we're, you know, our foundations. I don't know what to do other than to duplicate what we did, right? So right. I'm just protecting it from a data standpoint. If it's not part of the original recipe, I just throw my hand up and say, hey, that's not part of the original recipe. Can't approve that. Prove me wrong. We're, we're quick to make changes to the, to the processes and the system, but the processes and the system are still the system and the processes right. until we make those changes. So. Um, so what kind of support services do you have for your franchisees? Um, we have, uh, you know, franchise development is the, is, the, is the ultimate sort of support advocate for you through the process, franchise development. They're not going to, uh, they're not the complaint department. They're the advocacy department after you become a franchise partner, which means if you have a real issue with one of our internal departments, they will walk you through that and we'll, we'll advocate for your success. From franchise development, we have a uh, we have a, a robust real estate team. We are real estate developers. I'm a commercial general contractor. I'm a real estate developer. I own lots of real estate. I've developed lots of real estate from scratch. I've personally built five or six stores. I own does a dozen stores. Uh, so we 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 put our money where our mouth is in terms of knowing what we're talking about, and we teach you everything we know about real estate from a data standpoint. How to understand can I afford this rent? What are the metrics that we're looking for? How do we negotiate with realtors or, or, or brokers? 
we, we walk through that whole process from a real estate standpoint, a very robust team, but obviously we don't sign leases. We don't write checks. Uh, we don't, we don't, we don't hire attorneys. We don't, we don't hire civil engineers. We, we coach through every step of that. Frankly, we're as engaged as the partners engaged, but we are experts, absolute real estate experts. And we, we don't just tell you, Hey, shoot for this rent. Good luck. We are real estate developers. So we'll develop the site for you. We have one of our, one of our companies inside our portfolio is, is a real estate development company. It's called property holdings properly named there. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll take it from, from dirt to, uh, to a store, uh, build a suit. We'll, we'll, we'll do a ground lease. We'll do anything we, we can do if there's an opportunity to buy the land and if the operator doesn't want to own the land. We, we encourage the operators to own the real estate too. We walk them through real estate, start to finish, uh, lock arms and help them, uh, help them through that process. We're engaged as the partners engaged and we don't write checks. Um, we have a full-blown construction department. There are five GCs on staff here. They all, they all are former GCs, uh, general contractors, myself included. Uh, they're on staff here, and we, we we walk through the construction process, which is absolutely the most difficult part of the pro. Well, that and real estate are the two most difficult right. parts of the process, especially with this inflation and, and the construction costs where they are. I mean, my gosh, we're we're encountering the most bizarre of circumstances. But uh, as a as a GC for for since well well almost twenty years now. Uh, I feel like we have a pretty good team to support through the process. And again, we don't write checks, but we have, we have assets, we have training events. We have, uh, we have, uh, we have, I have a team of people in a general contractor's office right now uh, walking through some, some, um, some just whatever you walk through with the general contractor. So, I mean, we, we have a robust real estate, a robust, um, construction team, and then from marketing and operations, when the store is about 60 days out, our ops team jumps in there and says, okay, we have a few training events we have to accomplish. Uh, we, we, we have marketing jumps in and says, well, we got to do the grand opening. And it's not, it's not a, a wash, rinse, repeat scenario. Marketing's changing daily as technology changes, but uh, we've had, again, uh, we're solving new problems every day, not the same problems. Uh, and, and we're seeing unbelievable success uh, with our grand openings, which is super exciting. And then, of course, operations is absolutely everything. The operator is the most important employee in the entire company. Uh, uh, I can't speak enough to that. I think that's the most obvious part of the equation. But we also we also uh, primarily own the supply chain. And so if you if you were going to stand up a, an IST concept, there is no supply chain. Uh, food services is going to uh, laugh at you, and uh, and your supply chain is going to be Amazon essentially, or or some other uh, weird option. We own warehouses, tractor trailers, trucks. We have drivers, millions of dollars in inventory, and multiple distribution centers. Our trucks, our drivers show up to the store. We manufacture all the tea products in retail and in and in food service quantities. Um, we have lots of very unique items that food service won't touch. Uh, we have branded items. We're a master Yeti dealer, for instance. We're a master Pelican dealer. We, we have all these retail products. So it's not just a restaurant or retail and sort of a QSR. Uh, we own the supply chain. As an operator, we have two points of contact. We do have a food service vendor, and there is a, there is a, a, a little bit of product that you buy from food service, one drop a week. 
and then you have a contact with our internal company. It's called TBEVCO. Anything with a barcode on it or anything that we manufacture comes from our supply chain company, TBEVCO. So I can't say that we have it all figured out because we're right. we're, on, we're on fire drills, you know, once a week. But uh, we we definitely are very intentional and very deliberate about what we're doing and and challenging our processes on a daily basis. But I feel like we're the best. Uh, obviously, we're not. We have lots of room to grow. Uh, we're, we're self-aware enough to know that, you know, franchise partner support and unit level economics are everything to our system. And that's where we're focused. So you mentioned a lot there. Um, one of the things that I, that I took out of it is, you know, the uh, the importance of real estate. Um and how challenging that is right now. You're not the first person I've heard that from, that finding the right locations. Um, there's a lot of competition. There's a lot of, of uh, you know, money um, being thrown at different locations. Um, so what what do you see as kind of the challenges to your growth? Um, from a real estate perspective, um, it is, uh, there's a lot of, there's actually a lot of, liquidity still in the market. There's a lot of very innovative uh, institutional developers that are that are that are uh, are willing to accept a lower sort of return on their money than uh, than a, than a than a conventional developer. Where a conventional developer needs an eight to ten percent return on their money to pay bills, uh, there's some institutional money out there that that's that will accept. They haven't quite cracked the code because there's a there's there's very much a need for this developer role. But there's just a lot of money out there. And so you'll take someone that's an owner operator that's willing to pay a five or six percent return on, on their money and a and a developer like me that needs an eight to ten percent return on their money. And then somewhere in the middle, there's there's a couple of institutional players that are trying to crack the code and remove the middleman, although that's going to be extremely difficult to do. And so what we're seeing is uh, sites that make sense and then sites that are double that next door to each other. And, and it's just a fishing expedition. Um, the economics for what we're doing are very similar across the board. Uh, the, our, our, our average unit volume per square foot that we need to occupy is the same as every other concept uh, or better. Um, uh, the, ultimately, the economics are going to make the rules. And unfortunately, there's going to be a lot of failures in the future with, with brands that have taken speculative uh, positions on real estate with, I know for a fact what it takes to be profitable at my company. And I, f I feel like I know because I own other restaurants as well. I understand what my metrics are. Uh, we have a, well, we're, we're a little more insulated from, uh, 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 God, how do I say this? We, we, uh, let's, let's just say this. Um, there are going to be some concepts that can't pay rent because they made bad decisions. We're not making those decisions. We have a very strict underwriting process as a developer, as an operator, understanding that our cost of goods sold primarily in our labor costs. I can afford real estate that other brands can't, and I'm not paying what other brands are paying. And so we're very strict from an underwriting standpoint. There's gonna be a cycle here. We're still finding sites. We signed our 160th impossible deal. Uh, actually, I did, I did one yesterday in Albuquerque, New Mexico. 161st impossible real estate lease was signed this week. Um, we're we're still executing uh, aside brands that are paying double what we're paying for land, with with actually worse sales metrics and worse cost of goods sold metrics. There's going to be lots of fallout in the next five to ten years. Unfortunately, franchise partners will will be the ones that are sacrificed. 
Um, I, I don't see how it's sustainable. There are companies that can do math and then there's companies that can't do math. And, and, uh, and so uh, we're, we happen to feel like we're ones that can do math. And so you're just seeing, you're just seeing silliness across the board. I mean, right. if you had like to get your HVAC repaired at your house, you'll call two companies. One will be three times the money as the other one. You have someone that has a long-term out, outlook on their business and someone that thinks that, uh, that that they can they can uh, they can take uh, they can take your head off. I mean, a, a friend of mine uh, told me one time. He said, "You can shear a sheep many times, but you can only skin them once." Right. And there's a lot of skinning going on. If that makes sense. No, no, it makes sense. Um, so we talked a, a a lot about guest engagement, um, and you know and the importance of having that person in operations who is that face to face and who is presenting the brand in the best, the best way possible. Um, so, you know, how, how challenging is it to engage with a guest when they're at the drive-through, when your, your interactions with them are very brief and how do you make that experience so great for them that they want to keep coming back? That's a great question. I wish I could answer it. It's the hardest thing we could, we, we could imagine to talk about, but uh, we're trying. I mean, you can't you can't teach someone to love people, right? And uh, and that's the challenge. And so, if I have ten operators that sit in front of me, uh, you know, going through the process, three of them have the personality profile that 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 or or not that just their temperament, excuse me, or their something about them is you know focused on loving people. And that's the thing you can't teach. And so it's absolutely the hardest thing you can possibly encounter. Uh, I, I, I'm still optimistic that we're not going to have to go to, to a script where we say things to people like we, you know, uh, well, I'm not going to say it, but there's just, I don't want to go to a script. I want to, I still believe we can teach human beings to treat people right. And I think that that's what we focus on. And, and, uh, and so from a training standpoint, uh, from an operator standpoint, um, that's that's the focus. People are the focus. Employees first, customers second. Right. So there have been um, a number of beverage-focused concepts um, over the past few years that are growing a lot and attracting a lot of interest. Why do you think that that is? Why do you think that that now that these that there's just a lot of people who are um, you know, coming out and, and coming up, you know, with different soda concoctions and all kinds of things. I think the desire to compete with Starbucks is uh, overwhelming. It's always been, uh, you know, I mean, whether you love it or love them or hate them, you still probably drink their coffee and, uh, and, and, or their, their products. And uh, I think that, I think it's just like, there's gotta be a way to crack this code sort of mentality and I think that there's been some brands recently that have uh, built uh, great companies that that can actually gain market share. And I don't even know that 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 the, they're drinking the same thing at the different beverage concepts. But I don't believe in all of these concepts. I didn't believe in iced tea for many, many, many years. Twenty uh, two thousand nine, we opened our first store. I didn't partner with my parents until twenty twelve. I didn't open our first store until twenty fourteen. Uh, I didn't open. I didn't. I didn't open the first HTO till 2018. I was the. I was the. I was the skeptic. I'm a realist. I own a lot of businesses. 
I didn't think this was a legitimate concept. Uh, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm good at losing my money. It feels different to lose your money. I didn't have any interest in doing so. So we tested our concept to the to the end. We, we moved it uh, hundreds and hundreds of miles away from where we were very successful. We changed the name, changed everything. And until we went through this long multi-year process, all, all, all the time preparing to be a national brand, right? Like every step of the way I was recruiting help to help me build this company. We were building brands and logos and, and dreaming about the future, but testing it every step of the way. There's concepts out, out there that haven't been tested. And, and so, um, but, but to finally be able to compete with Starbucks. And I think if you can start with gross sales, which is where we started in reverse engineer profitability, I think that's what you're seeing play out in real time. And I think that there's concepts that may or may not be profitable that are being stood up right now. And, uh, and, and we tested it. I think iced tea is definitely, a. uh, I mean, I don't have to, I mean, it's so silly, right? Like it's, it is the largest commodity on earth from a, from a beverage standpoint, right? And how come, how come people, how come nobody's done this? Well, the, the, I know the reasons why, and, and I'm sure there will be several people listening to this potentially that will find out for themselves unless they join the HTO team. Uh, there's lots of challenges. It, it looks, it looks easy. It's not. Uh, and it, what, and it looks easy for Starbucks to do it, but it's not. And so if you, it, again, I just take you back to drinking that pancake restaurant coffee and imagine how terrible it tastes. Uh, it's the same thing for, with iced tea, but not so much these other brands. So we'll see what happens. We don't sell. I mean, look, half of our menu has zero calories. All of our menu, I can't say all. Most of our menu has health benefits. Okay. Uh that's not that that can't be said for these other concepts. We use a lot of sugar, don't get me wrong. And you may walk in fully intending to buy an unsweet product and leaving with a sweet product or a sweet zero. We call we, we have a partnership with uh with Truvia and and we have a, a, a zero calorie sweetened option, but um we have ha we have twelve flavors that are unsweet. And and so um, that I think that's the differentiator. I don't know if that that wasn't exactly what you asked, but I think that what you're seeing is just this overwhelming desire to to try to figure this out. I think there's a couple brands that have finally figured out how to compete with them. So where do you hope the brand is in five years? My hope lies solely in franchise partner support, not in numbers. And so if I have a store by themselves in Florida, I want more stores in Florida. I recently did a tour and met with some people that are on the fringes that are really trying to trailblaze into new markets. And I told them, I'll open a store next door to you if you need me to. You, we just we need to stay tight on this deal and figure out where where the synergies need to lie. And if we if we venture a little a little too far from home uh, and we need some support, and we need to open five stores at once. Then we're here to help you. And so my my goals, my future goals are are fundamentally in franchise partner support. The rest of this is just, it is what it is. I mean, we're, we're looking to open, you know, half a dozen corporate stores at the moment. We've got one under construction, several in the works, uh, but we're, we're primarily focused on franchise partner support. That's going to drive the, that's going to drive our team, not some arbitrary number created in space. We're, we're just, we're solely, we're, look, we're, we're asking people to commit to us. We're committed to them. That's going to drive my, that's going to drive my goals. Perfect. Thank you so much.